most of the pathogens that we talked about are going to take a certain period of time to transmit. And so if you go out in the morning and you hunt for the day and you come back in the evening and check yourself for ticks and you remove any that you find, there is a very low chance of any of those ticks actually transmitting a pathogen to you because they need to stay attached for 12 or 24 hours or 72 hours, depending on the pathogen. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're going to be talking with Dr. Michael Yabsley of the University of Georgia. Michael is a professor of wildlife diseases at UGA. Uh, He's also a researcher with the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. So I brought Michael on to talk all about ticks, tick-borne diseases, and how we as hunters can protect ourselves from uh, from getting any of those diseases. Uh, it's that time of year, you know, when when ticks are really starting to become an issue. Uh, although for some of us here in the South, they're they're pretty much a year round issue, but uh, they really ramp up this time of year across the country. And I know a lot of you guys are going to be getting out here soon to start, you know, doing things like running your trail cameras, clearing shooting lanes, hanging tree stands. Uh, maybe some of you are working on food plots. So you're going to need to take precautions to prevent exposure as much as possible. And that's a a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Michael's a super interesting guy. So I know you guys are going to pick up a lot of great information from our discussion. Uh, Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Redneck Blinds. Redneck makes some of the finest hunting blinds on the market. And we're actually hosting a fundraiser starting this week. Uh, that's going to give you a chance to win one of the one of Redneck's Trophy Tower Platinum 5x5 blinds with a 5-foot tower stand to support it. Uh, the winner is also going to get a choice between a custom Matthews bow, a Mission Sub 1XR Pro crossbow, or a Savage 110 Apex Hunter XP rifle and 6.5 PRC. And, and as always, all proceeds raised will go toward our mission of ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So be sure to head over to our website at deerassociation.com and click on that Redneck Blind Sweepstakes banner on our homepage. Get those chances today before uh, before your time runs out. Uh, one other thing before we get on the phone here with Michael, I haven't mentioned this in the last few episodes, but we are still offering that special NDA membership offer for our podcast listeners uh, you can join NDA for a year, get your four issues of Quality Whitetails magazine. You're going to get a special NDA cap, and you're going to help support our mission, all for just $30. Uh, that's $5 off the regular price, plus we're throwing in that NDA cap to kind of sweeten up the deal. So, hey, don't miss out on that opportunity. Even if you're a current member, you can use this offer to extend your membership by year and you're still going to get the free cap. So again, you can head over to our website at deerassociation.com, click on that join or renew link right at the top of the page, and use the promo code podcast, and that's going to lock that deal in for you. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Dr. Michael Yabsley to talk all about ticks, tick-related diseases, and what we can do to kind of minimize our risk of exposure to those diseases. 
All right, Michael, uh, before we dive into uh, ticks and some of the tick-borne diseases, can you just tell us a, a little bit about yourself and, and what you do at the University of Georgia? <clears throat> sure. So I'm the Warnell Professor of Forestry and Natural Resources. Uh, I have a split position between the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources, where I do work with wildlife diseases. And my other half of my appointment at UGA is within the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study at the College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, I work on a variety of different wildlife and domestic animal and human pathogens, uh, primarily looking at how these pathogens transmit in nature, and in particular, if wildlife are involved in any of the life cycles of these parasites and pathogens of concern. And as you can guess, I do a lot of work with ticks and tick-borne pathogens as well. <laughs> Yeah. Now, how did you get involved directly, I guess, with, with studying ticks and tick-related diseases? I mean, was, was that an interest at all, or is that just kind of something that, that came with the title? Yeah, I like all sorts of parasites, and so I'm fascinated with life cycles and with pathogen transmission, and ticks have a very complicated um, life cycle. They use you know a bunch of different hosts. They have to have the right environment to survive. And they, unfortunately for us and our um, pets and wildlife species, they transmit a, a large diversity of pathogens. So they're, they're quite an important group to study. Well, let's, we're going to dive into kind of unpack a lot of that um, here today. But before we do, just kind of some broad level stuff. What, I guess, what do we know about tick populations as far as are, are tick populations on the rise, are they stable or is it, does it vary regionally or what do we know about the, their overall population? Yeah, overall, the populations are changing. Um, some areas are seeing it a lot more than others. Here in the southeast, we have a core group of ticks. And for the most part, we've had them for a very long period of time. And we don't see a whole lot of changes going on. Um, there are some years that are bigger years than others for the number of ticks. Um, we do have a new tick here in Georgia that we can talk about later on, the Asian longhorn tick. But for the most part, most of our ticks that we have here in Georgia are the ones we've had a long time. As we start to shift further north, um, we do have quite a large number of tick species shifting their ranges. So a lot of our ticks that we've had here in the southeast are expanding their range further north, um, some as far north as Canada. And as those ticks move, they take their pathogens with them. So there's a, there's a large number of ticks and tick-borne pathogens that were already big concerns up in the Northeast, but now they're starting to have to deal with uh, uh, quite a number of new ticks and pathogens moving their way. And we're seeing similar expansions in the Midwest and upper Midwest as well. And, and I assume that's climate-based, just warmer conditions are, are letting them expand further north. Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. Some of the ticks that predominate here in the South, like the Lone Star ticks, um, do prefer warmer weather. Um, and as they move further north, we do tend to see them um, along the coastal regions where it's a bit more temperate. But this tick is certainly um, doing quite well as far north as southern parts of Canada, up into Connecticut and um, parts of the upper Midwest. And, and you mentioned some, I guess, kind of annual variability in those those numbers what what factors influence that um what you know why there might be more ticks in a, in a given year than than another yeah there's a a bunch of different reasons for that depending on the tick species um but it could be you know annual variation in weather 
Um, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, we've had a really hard, cold winter, so we're not going to have any ticks in the spring. We get that question a lot, but these ticks are really good at burrowing down into the tick litter and surviving from one season to the next. So, you know, if there's an exceptionally hard winter, it may knock down some of them, but it's certainly not going to kill a good portion of the population. Um, And then you can have years where you've got lots of acorns, and so you're going to have lots of mice, and so they may support uh, certain stages of certain tick species, and so you would expect higher numbers of those ticks in subsequent seasons or years. Uh, you may have changes in deer populations at a local level that may influence tick populations for a year or two. You may have introductions of new ticks into new areas that could influence it. So um, it just sort of depends on which system you're talking about. Yeah. How closely are tick populations tied to local deer populations? Is that a pretty strong correlation? For certain tick species, yes. Um, so the black-legged ticks, those are the, the Ixodes scapularis ticks that transmit causative agent of Lyme disease, uh, primarily in the upper Midwest and Midwest and Northeast. Um, those adults very much feed on large animals, and so deer are a very common host for them. And then down in the South, um, and then also in other parts of the country as well, the Lone Star ticks, all three stages of the Lone Star ticks love to feed on deer. And so any place you're going to have a large number of deer, it can help sustain large populations of the Lone Star ticks. And there are other ticks that are important to human and animal health, like the uh, you know brown dog tick or the American dog tick, um, Amer- uh, Amblyomma maculatum, the Gulf Coast tick. They rarely will get on deer, um, but those are more tied towards rodents and smaller mammals like raccoons and possums and other animals. Okay. Gotcha. And I do want to here in a few minutes, I do want to kind of dive into, uh, you know, some of the some of the different common tick species. But but before we do that, can you just kind of walk us through the life cycle of a tick? Because I think there's, you know, a lot of, I guess, confusion and and just misinformation about that. What does that life cycle look like? So for all of the common uh, tick species that we have here in the U.S. that's a concern for pathogen transmission to people or or animals, they're all three-host ticks. And so when the eggs hatch in the environment, you have those very, very small larvae uh, that hatch out. And they oftentimes are swarms of ticks that people get on them because thousands of larvae will hatch out of a single egg mass and they're all sort of sitting in the same area looking for a new host. So when people encounter larvae, they do tend to get lots of them on them. Uh, And then those larvae are going to attach to their host and take a blood meal and then fall off of that host into the environment where they then will uh, molt over the next couple of weeks or months to the nymphal stage And then that nymph will seek out a new host and take a blood meal and it will fall off of that host into the environment and uh, molt to the adult. Then when it gets to the adult stage, you have males and females for most all of the ticks we have here in the U.S. There's one exception now. Um, And those will seek out a new host to take another blood meal. And then, of course, you need the male and the female in the same host. They will mate. The female is the one that's takes a huge blood meal. Um, So she's the one that engorges with blood and then will um, start to produce eggs. She'll fall off into the environment, lay those eggs and die. The male can stay on the host and seek out new females to mate with. 
he takes small blood meals, but he never engorges. And so, you know, there's at least three different hosts that these ticks need to find to feed on. Uh, depending on the species, there may be different species of host, or they could be all the same. And um, at each of those different stages, there's a potential for some sort of pathogen transmission to people. Some pathogens um, are going to be more common in nymphal or adult ticks, whereas others may actually be present in the larvae. It just depends on the pathogen. So um, prevention of all stages is important. Um, and then the reason I pointed out the male and the female um, in particular is because oftentimes they will look different. And so um, all of these different stages are different sized, can have different ornamentations and different color. And so uh, depending on what species you have, you could have a bunch of different looking ticks on the same animal and they could all be the same species. Okay. Now, when you say, you mentioned there that, that the males will, will take blood meals, but they won't engorge themselves. What, what, I guess, what's the difference there? Are they, they're just attaching for a short period of time and then falling off as opposed to, you know, well, like the, <laughs> they, they, they take a small blood meal, um, but they don't stay attached and engorge, but they don't fall off the host. They actually are running around the host looking for a female to mate with. So he just takes small blood meals. Um, and then when he finds the female, um, they mate and that's what stimulates her to engorge with blood so that she can produce her, uh, eggs. Okay. And this, and this entire cycle happens in the course of one year. Uh, well, it depends on the tick species. Some of them takes two years for okay. them to complete the entire cycle. And so, um, you bring up a good point that um, all of these tick stages are going to be active at different times of the year, depending on the tick species. And so this is sort of the season that people think about ticks. They're like, it's tick season. Spring is here and the ticks are out. And that's certainly true. There's a ton of ticks um, starting to emerge at different stages uh, and feeding on people and pets and animals. But there are certain tick species or stages that are also active during the winter. So here in the south, we don't have as many, um, but as you start to move further north, there are some that are active in the winter as well. So tick prevention really is something you should think about year round, although for sure spring, summer, early fall in the south is the big tick season. Right. What, what is the, the lifespan of a tick? How long can, can a tick live? For these um, common ticks that are feeding on people here, um, they can go for several months um, but with, uh, while they wait to take a blood meal, um, but they, they certainly are going to find that blood meal during that time period or probably would die. There are other kinds of ticks called soft ticks that live out um, in the western parts of the country, and there's some in the southeast as well, that feed on birds and rodents. They live in the nests of these animals and sort of come out and feed on them. Um, if you have chickens, there are certain species that feed on chickens and doves, but they uh, have much different, uh, very different life cycle than these other ticks that I've been talking about. And they take small blood meals. They don't stay attached to the host for very long. And so they sort of just live in the environment waiting for a host to come by and then they take a quick blood meal. Those species, the soft ticks, can actually live for decades um, and there was actually a study that came out recently where somebody had some ticks in a, a little aquarium on their desk and they had gone decades without feeding and they were still alive. Wow. So. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, 
Now you mentioned, I assume what in what I've always called and a lot of people call refer to seed ticks. It, that's the larval stage. Is that correct? Yeah. Because I know there, there's some confusion there. I've heard people use the term seed ticks like interchangeably with like it's a species of tick, you know, like a, a deer tick is is a as a seed tick or whatever. But that's that's actually the, the larval stage that you were referring to that all ticks go through. Correct. Or? Yes. So that's just the larval stage. And, you know, they're really, really small and you tend to get a large number of them. So you get these little larval swarms. But it could be any species of tick, really. Um, here in the southeast, the most common one is the Lone Star tick. And so that's the one we tend to see. Um, common names are, are, are funny. Um, depending on what part of the country you're in, they're called different things. And so um, when I first got started, I had folks sending me ticks from the Midwest and they were talking about turkey ticks. And I said, well, there's no particular tick that exclusively feeds on turkeys. Um, but Lone Stars will feed on them, but so will Dermacenter and Exodes. And they're like, no, no, these are the turkey ticks. And so sure enough, they sent them to me and they were Lone Star ticks. So um, depending on where you're from, the, the different tick species can have different names. Uh, you mentioned the deer tick. That's a co- another common name for the black-legged tick uh, from up the Northeast. Yeah, uh, us country folk have a way of coming up with our own <laughs> our own names for everything. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's funny uh, you mentioned the deer tech. You know, that's one of my I always threaten to fail my students if they call it the deer tech, because if you're from the north, um, the deer tech is going to be the black legged tech. That is the one that you predominantly find on white tailed deer. Uh, if you're in the south um, and you look at a deer Anytime during the spring, summer, or fall, you're going to predominantly find Lone Star ticks on those deer. But Exodes scapularis, the black-legged tick, or the deer tick, can also be found on deer as you move into the fall and the winter. And so, you know, maybe for hunters, the predominant tick that they do see on deer in the southeast would be uh, the deer tick or the black-legged tick. But that's certainly not the most common that we see on the deer down here. So it's just, it's a just a funny name because it's not quite the right tick when we're looking at deer. Right. Yeah. Now, I guess do ticks, do they actually seek out a host like, you know, like a mosquito would be attracted to, you know, warm a human or warm blooded mammal, or are they just hanging out on vegetation, basically just waiting for the chance, you know, for something to brush by and attach to? Both of those. So there are certain species that seek out hosts and they can um, sense CO2 changes, uh, temperature, uh, light, rust, you know, vibration. And so they'll actually actively seek out a host, whereas others will quest. So they'll they'll crawl up on vegetation and just sort of wave their little legs about waiting for a person or an animal to brush up against them. And then they'll attach to the fur, the, you know, skin and crawl around and find a good place to attach. So um, we, we, we call those questing ticks. Uh, and even those ticks that will seek out a host will also quest. Um, and we use that to our advantage when we're trying to capture ticks for different studies. So we can use very sophisticated tick traps called CO2 traps, which are essentially pieces of cardboard with double-sided sticky tape on them. Uh, in a circle with a big chunk of dry ice in the middle. So as that dry ice sublimates, it produces CO2 and it attracts ticks from all around to come to it, thinking that it's a giant host for it. And then they get stuck to the tape. Or we can drag giant pieces of white cloth through the environment. Um, and as those ticks that are questing, they waving their legs around, they'll actually stick to the cloth. 
and think they've got a, a new host that they can attach to. I must put out a lot of CO2. because <laughs> I, I, I have a knack for finding ticks and uh, mosquitoes seem to like me pretty well too. So, Well, I'm the opposite. I'm either the best or the worst tick researcher ever because ticks never get on me. I'll be out dragging and I'll find ticks through our drags of the white cloth, but they won't get on me. But mosquitoes and midges, um, the noceums, they love me so, so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good problem to have, uh, to, to not uh, be a, have ticks attracted to you. So, yeah, that's that's a good thing. But, well, let's I know you've already touched on on several here that we've already talked about, but let, let's just kind of dive into the most common tick species that, that we would encounter uh, basically anywhere in the, you know, most of our listeners are deer hunters, a whitetail hunter. So we're, we're mainly talking about the, the Eastern U.S., uh, some Midwest as well. But what are some of the most common tick species that, that we would encounter out there? Well, in, in much of the Eastern United States, the tick that reigns supreme, especially in the Southeast and Midwest, is the Lone Star Tick. Um, and so that's the one, the female has that white spot on her back. And then the male is a bit smaller, but doesn't have that white spot. Um, in the Midwest, upper Midwest and into the Northeast, you've got the black-legged tick or the deer tick. Um, and those are a bit smaller and brown. And um, in certain parts of the Southeast and increasingly moving north, we've got the Gulf Coast tick. Um, they're actually quite beautiful ticks. They have really good, pretty ornamentation on their back. Um, and they're relatives of the Lone Star tick. Uh, we've got Dermacenter, which is the American dog tick, uh, which is very common on dogs and raccoons and possums and other uh, smaller critters out there, but get on people as well. And um, sort of the new kid on the block is the Asian longhorn tick, is Haemophysalis longicornis. So this is a, an exotic tick that was first recognized to be in the United States in 2017 in New Jersey, but now that we've started looking at archived tick specimens, we know that it's been in the country since 2010 in West Virginia. And it is sort of the um, tick that breaks a lot of the rules that I've already talked about. There's only females. It's a parthenogenetic species. So the females essentially can clone herself. Um, each female produces thousands of eggs and then they're all female. And then every one of those can produce um, eggs as well. So this is, we've been doing a lot of work with this tick since it was first recognized and it's been slowly spreading or been recognized in new areas throughout the mid-Atlantic states, moving down into Kentucky, uh, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, um, Tennessee, and then as of late last year, Georgia. And so that we've got two counties that are um, known to have this tick here in Georgia now. Now, uh, obviously being able to to reproduce that way, just all being females and cloning themselves, producing thousands, thousands of young, are, are they, are they displacing other tick species? We don't have any evidence yet that they're um, out competing other ticks. They uh, use some of the same hosts. So white-tailed deer seem to be a really common host for that tick, but they readily feed on dogs, cats, horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and then a bunch of wildlife species. Uh, and in fact, cattle is uh, some of the more common hosts that is being reported on right now. Um, but if it's present in the environment, we do tend to find it on deer as well. So 
Um, because of its parthenogenetic nature, it does tend to build up large numbers of ticks in the environment. And then subsequently, large numbers appear on the hosts as well. And so in other parts of the world where this has been introduced, um, like New Zealand and Australia, they've, they've noted that calves and even deer can be assanguinated um, by the huge number of ticks that can feed on them. So we don't have any um, evidence of that happening to deer here in the U.S. yet, but there was a, an infested herd of cattle in North Carolina that um, essentially the tick sucked so much blood that it looks like it caused um, death of the cows. And that's what, I'm going to butcher the word you said here, a sanguinated? Oh, so yeah, sanguinated. So they, they suck a lot of blood. And so essentially you lose too much blood and uh, you become anemic and can die. Okay, gotcha. Well, I, I guess that, that's as good a segue as any into the, the disease part of this. What uh, did I hear that, that these long, well, what is it again? The longhorn tick? He's in longhorn tick. Yeah, that they carry uh, some new type of disease or, or a different disease than, than other ticks have been known to carry. So anytime that you've got a, a new tick introduced to an area, there's going to be concerns that it brings in pathogens with it. Um, so that tick species is known to transmit a number of important human and animal pathogens in Asia, as well as some of the introduced areas of the world um, where it's established. Um, and one in particular is a virus that causes um, thrombocytopenia in people. Luckily, there's been no evidence that that virus has been brought to the U.S. with the tick. Um, it did bring with it, presumably, um, Tyleria orientalis, which is a parasite that can cause um, severe disease in cattle. So not all cattle, cows that get infected with the parasite will get sick, but um, some of them can. And there's been uh, at least one herd in Virginia where clinical disease was noted in cows that were infected with this exotic parasite that is transmitted by the Asian longhorn tick. Okay. And so, for, from, oh, yeah, go ahead. From the, yeah, from the animal standpoint, that's the major pathogen of concern right now. Um, there have been a variety of studies looking at the ability of that tick to transmit pathogens that are native to the U.S. And so, um, for the most part, it doesn't appear, at least within these laboratory studies, that it's an important uh, vector for really Burgdorferi that causes Lyme disease or Anaplasma phagocytophilum and that causes anaplasmosis in people. But um, there's continued efforts to look at its uh, ability to transmit different pathogens of importance and also surveillance for different pathogens in the environment. And we've been doing some of that work at some of our research sites. And we found, a, you know, Rickettsia felis, which is a potential pathogen in some of those ticks. Um, others have found evidence of Borrelia burgdorferi in a low number of ticks in Pennsylvania. So it's possible that... Some of these pathogens are picked up by the tick in nature. We just don't know quite yet how important of a vector it's going to be. But right now, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a big vector of important pathogens for people. Um, there's been a recent report of Heartland virus uh, in, in, in tick in Virginia. So it's the potential's there over time for it to potentially uh, start to pick up some of our native pathogens and become important. But luckily, right now, the big focus isn't on the parasite of cattle. Okay. Well, let, let's walk through some of the, the more common um, tick-borne diseases that, that we're aware of. 
And I'll just kind of, I guess I'll kind of walk through the ones that I'm aware of that you can talk about. And then if there's any that we missed, um, you, you can talk about those as well. But uh, I guess just start us out with the one that that I've been aware of, I guess, the the longest, but but really don't hear as much of about anymore. Or maybe you just hear more about some of the other ones. But but Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that as far as? you know, which, which tick species carry that and its impact on humans, that kind of stuff? Yeah, the predominant vector for Rickettsia rickettsii that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever is the um, Dermacenter dog ticks. And so those ticks are quite common throughout the eastern part of the country. And you're right that, you know, we don't hear a whole lot about it because predominantly Lyme disease takes the press when people start talking about pathogens. Um, but as you, as we'll talk about, there's a whole diversity of pathogens out there and ticks. So Rocky Mountain spotted fever, un, uh, unlike the name suggests, is actually most common in the eastern part of the country. So there's a line that runs from North Carolina over to Oklahoma. We we see the most cases in that line, but they do occur sporadically throughout the eastern part of the country, and then also in the western part of the country as well. Um, one of the difficulties in understanding the epidemiology of that disease in people is that there are other rickettsial pathogens of ticks that can be transmitted to people or animals, and those are sometimes difficult to tell apart from Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And so people may be diagnosed with Rocky Mountain spotted fever, get antibiotic treatment, and get better, um, but unless specific tests are run, they may not have necessarily had that specific pathogen. They may have had something else, but luckily the the drugs treated it, so they got better. Um, but that sort of masks our ability to understand the importance of maybe some of these other pathogens is uh, important to human health because they don't actively get diagnosed accurately. Yeah, and I guess what are what are some of the symptoms of Rocky Mountain spotted fever? For most of these tick-borne pathogens, it's going to be flu-like symptoms. Um, so sort of the summer flu. Um, and of course, with COVID going around, that makes things difficult to try to, to catch these things. But, um, you know, you're going to have fever, um, muscle aches. You're just going to be tired. And, you know, every person's different. Some will be more severe than others. Uh, and then, you know, with Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you may have a rash um, that occurs on your body. Um, oftentimes that sort of comes on after some of the other symptoms have come on. But you can get a rash with some of these other pathogens as well. Um, but you don't necessarily have to get the rash. And so um, just holding out and waiting to see if you get a rash is not a good approach. <laughs> if you've got a known exposure to ticks and you start to develop flu-like symptoms, you certainly need to reach out to a doctor and, and be checked out and, and make sure that you express that you've had known exposure to ticks because um, oftentimes it's something um, they don't think about necessarily. Um, and then with Lyme disease, sort of that classic uh, bullseye rash is what people look for. But you don't always see that. And so, again, you don't want to wait and just um, see if you develop the rash that's characteristic of it. You want to go ahead and get tested. Right. It, it, is there an effective test for Lyme disease? Because okay. like, like you kind of referred to there, there's, you hear so many stories of people who, you know, in some cases went years with undiagnosed, you know, undiagnosed with, with different symptoms. 
So is there a, is there a test that can pinpoint, yeah, this is, you have Lyme disease? The, the short answer is yes. So there are good tests out there for a lot of these different tick-borne pathogens. Now there's always going to be cases that are missed. Um, there's always going to be individuals that have symptoms that don't necessarily pinpoint um, that you may have a tick-borne pathogen or the test just doesn't work well um, for one reason or another. And so you're always going to hear those stories. Um, but for the most part, the tests work pretty well. Um, and a lot of times um, people will get treated empirically. So if you've got symptoms suggestive of a tick-borne illness and you've had exposure to ticks, you may go on antibiotics um, uh, just because um, there's a high suspicion there that you've had a tick-borne pathogen. And for these, you know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever and, and Lyme disease, it, will the antibiotics, I mean, will that, will that take care of it? Will that, you know, yeah, take care and, of it once and for all? Or is it, it sounds like, or at least with some people with Lyme disease, it, it's an, an ongoing thing they, they deal with. Yeah, it depends on the pathogen. And so for most of these ticks, the pathogens of concern are going to be bacterial agents um, that are going to be killed by the appropriate antibiotics. Um, and so if you get early treatment, you're going to have really good you know, recovery and clearance of those pathogens. Uh, there are a number of viruses associated with ticks that are not going to be treated with those antibiotics. And then there's actually some parasites like Babesia that infect people from ticks and those that parasite's not treated by antibiotics either. So that's why it's always important to get um, medical attention and get the tests run. Um, with suspected Rocky Mountain spotted fever, they're always going to treat pretty quickly and aggressively because it can go um, south pretty quickly for people. And so they want to make sure that you get treated um, appropriately. But in the meantime, you know, you need to have those tests run to make sure that you don't have some other tick-borne pathogen that's not going to respond well to that treatment. Okay. So don't empirically treat yourself <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, the next one I want to talk about is, is one that uh, I know uh, scares a lot of us deer hunters to death. Uh, the, the meat allergy or the alpha-gal allergy um, is one that I'd never heard of till I actually I moved from Kentucky to Georgia back in around 2011. Had never heard of this, and and one of the first guys I met after I moved here, his his wife had this, and uh, since then it seems like I, I've met quite a few people that that either have this or they have you know know somebody in their inner circle that has this. So uh, definitely seems to be uh, something that's becoming more commonplace but can you talk about you know what it is what, what ticks carry it and and that kind of stuff yeah and as a as a good southerner that loves barbecue you know, i'm paranoid about this as well um i do know a couple of people that have it as well and it's it's interesting so you know we talk about pathogens associated with ticks this actually isn't a pathogen so this is one of the a couple of the conditions associated with ticks that are not associated with any sort of pathogen when a tick, and we believe the Lone Star tick is the predominant tick associated with the alpha-gal allergy here in the southeast, is feeding on you, um, it releases that alpha-gal sugar protein into your body. And in some people, that elicits an immune response to that particular protein. And because that protein is found on the cell surfaces of mammalian tissue, so... Um, all of those meats, uh, those red meats that you'd be eating, um, your body reacts to them 
Uh, you've, you've developed an allergy to that particular protein. So it's a cross reaction between a, the sugar molecule, the alpha-gal that the ticks are secreting into your body and that protein that's on the surface of the meat that you're eating. So for some people, it can be um, mild and just related to some gastrointestinal distress issues, whereas in other people, it can become a medical emergency allergic reaction. Um, so it, it can be quite severe for sure. And as you noted, it seems to be increasing uh, in the number of people that have this condition. And it certainly doesn't seem like it's, it's related to people being diagnosed. You know, that's one common thing people talk about when we talk about an increase in the number of tick-borne pathogens out there. They're like, oh, well, people are looking more, so they're finding it more, and that's why there's more people with it. Um, in this particular case, um, you know, this wasn't something that was really known um, a couple of decades ago, and now all of a sudden, it's like everybody knows somebody with it. So it's not restricted to the United States either. There are cases being reported in other parts of the world, and so there are other tick species that can be associated with this. And we, we don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, there's a whole lot of research that's needed for sure to understand which of the tick species that can produce this uh, allergic reaction in people and which ones can't and what factors are responsible for that production of an allergic reaction in certain people but not others and what you potentially can do about it. Um, the other condition that's associated with ticks that's not pathogenic is, is uh, um, when they're secreting uh, neurotoxins into the host and they can actually become paralyzed. So tick paralysis. And this is something that is not really common, but it's certainly scary when it happens to people or their pets. Um, but essentially, as the tick is feeding, it's producing this neurotoxin. And in a human you're going to have localized paralysis of the tissues around where the tick is feeding. Um, but in smaller animals like dogs or birds, they can actually have full body paralysis that can ultimately kill that animal. Okay. Going back to the, the alpha gal, is there any treatment for that? No, not right now. Um, essentially avoiding um, meat products that are going to produce that reaction. There's, you know, some evidence that if people can avoid tick exposure, that over time they may get better. Um, they, so if you weren't, you know, really severe to begin with, then, you know, over time, maybe you can go back and start eating red meat. Um, but in those folks that it's a life threatening emergency, they certainly don't want to keep trying that out and see how things go. Um, they're, you know, Continued exposure to ticks is certainly going to make it worse for those individuals that already have that allergy. And um, there is actually in development genetically modified pigs that they've actually modified the alpha-gal protein out of those pigs. And so they're, they're alpha-gal safe pigs. And so you can have pork products um, produced by these pigs that don't induce the allergy in people. So at least there's a little bit of huh. hope for those individuals um, moving forward. Yeah. So any other, I guess, tick-borne illnesses or pathogens or anything else that worth discussing, I guess, that we haven't already? Yeah. So in terms of the infectious pathogens, uh, you know, we talked about Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, Lyme disease is the big one that people tend to think about and talk about. That's most common in the Northeast and the upper Midwest. 
but there are sporadic cases that occur in other parts of the country as well. Uh, and down here in the South, where the Lone Star Tick is the predominant one, there are a couple different Ehrlichia species that cause Ehrlichiosis. Um, there are a couple of viruses, Heartland virus and Bourbon virus in particular, that can infect people and cause disease. So um, although it seems like everybody knows somebody that's had Lyme disease, um, the, the fact is if you're in the South, you probably didn't have Lyme disease, but you probably had one of these other um, tick-borne pathogens that cause similar uh, presentations in people, flu-like illness, maybe a rash um, present or not. And then they respond to antibiotic treatment. And so people you know, sort of think, oh, I must have had Lyme disease because I know that one. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've, we've gone through the, the different types of ticks, their life cycle and, and the diseases they can carry. Uh, now let's kind of dive into how we as hunters can can best avoid ticks and tick-borne illnesses uh, w- without just locking ourselves indoors for the rest of our lives. So, uh, Yeah, no, 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 definitely don't want to do that. Um, and that's usually how my classes go. People leave my classes and they're like, I'm scared to eat or go outside ever again. Um, so no, we don't, we definitely don't need to, um, become recluses. There are things that we can do. So, you know, there's a number of different products that you can use that will repel, um, and also can kill ticks. So, you know, DEET is one of the old, you know, school ones people know about, but there's Picardin and IR3535, oil of lemon eucalyptus for those that prefer more natural products, PMD. Um, and so those are all EPA registered insect repellents that you can use that are effective in repelling ticks. Um, You can get um, pyrethrin um, treated clothing that, you know, you can either buy it or you can actually get pyrethrin and and treat your clothing and shoes and socks so that when you go out, you're actively repelling those ticks away from you or killing those ticks even when they do come in contact with you. Um, some of those products last longer than others. Um, higher concentrations work better than lower. You know, you you can read about them and see, you know, what's best for you. And um, but there's a number of different products that you can use, which is good. You know, you know, another big thing that we would tell people is to avoid areas that have large numbers of ticks. Well, that's not necessarily going to be um, the case with hunters. You're actively going into the place where ticks are going to be really common, but brushy areas, wooded areas, places with lots of high grasses, those are going to be um, awesome tick habitat. So since you're going out there, you're going to want to take those precautions. Um, things like wearing you know, long pants, which most hunters would be doing anyway, but tucking your pants into your socks is quite useful. Um, it's also a very bold fashion statement. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So the thing is, you know, if you don't tuck your pants in, then the ticks just crawl up your pants and then they're going to keep going north until they find a, a fun place to attach. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then because you've gone out into an area where, you know, ticks are common. Um, and if you're a turkey hunter and you're out during the spring when lots of ticks are out, when you get home, you're going to want to check for ticks. So, you know, do it yourself, have a partner check you for ticks. Um, The larval ticks and even the nymphal ticks can be very, very small. So just actively feeling for ticks is not necessarily going to be all that useful because they're very small and you're not going to feel them. So you want to sort of look for them and they're going to attach to all the nice, warm, dark areas um, of your body. And so most of the pathogens that we talked about 
are going to take a certain period of time to transmit. And so if you go out in the morning and you hunt for the day and you come back in the evening and check yourself for ticks and you remove any that you find, there is a very low chance of any of those ticks actually transmitting a pathogen to you because they need to stay attached for 12 or 24 hours or 72 hours, depending on the pathogen. So doing that um, same day check is really going to be important. Um, any clothes that you're wearing, um, either go directly into the laundry or if you're not going to wash them, toss them in the dryer or any other materials you put in the dryer on a high heat for 10 minutes is sufficient to kill ticks. So blankets or anything like that can just go straight into the dryer and you can kill the ticks that way. Um, if you take pets with you, um, I'm a big person uh, on uh, making sure that pets are protected against ticks and tick-borne pathogens as well. So you want to check your pets for ticks, making sure they're on um, labeled products to uh, repel and kill ticks as well. Um, ticks don't always attach right away. They actually will crawl around on you for a while. Um, if you're like my wife, she feels them crawling on her and she can pluck them right off. I don't necessarily feel them crawling on me, um, but they'll crawl around looking for a, a nice place to attach. And so if you shower right away um, after being outside, you can actually get them off of you before they, they attach. So there's a number of different things that you can do um, to minimize ticks getting on you to begin with and then maximize detection of any ticks that may be on you when you come home. Right. That, I'm curious about you mentioned the, the treated clothing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't guess I've, I've heard of that. Is that. Does that seem to be relatively effective? And, and how long is that, that treated it's clothing good for? Yeah, um, it's, it's really effective, actually. Um, there have been a number of studies that have looked at um, how effective it is. And folks that wear um, permethrin-treated clothing are far less likely to have ticks attached to them than folks that do not. Um, and so you can buy a number of products that are already impregnated with the permethrin, but you can also just buy um, spray permethrin and apply it to your shoes, socks, and pants. Um, you just take them outside and you spray them down um, with the permethrin. The instructions are on the label. You let it dry. And then um, it's really good at uh, repelling ticks and killing any ticks that do get on you. And depending on the product um, and the, the, the clothing that you're putting it on, uh, it does last for several washings, um, but it varies from a couple to seven or 10 washes. Just depends on the the type of product you're using and, and what you're spraying it on. Um, but it does last for a good long while and it's really effective for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now I am a, yeah, I'm a big believer in, in permethrin and, and use it religiously, but I, I hadn't heard of the, the pre-treated clothing was what piqued my interest there. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned what, what was the, the more natural um, item you could use there? The uh, eucalyptus. Oil, yeah, the oil of lemon eucalyptus. So it works quite well as as well. And that's and, and it's in a, in a variety of different products um, that you can buy. Um, I think Repel is one of them and Cutter both have uh, eucalyptus options and they're usually labeled um, mainly as deep free. Essentially, it's sort of the natural alternative. And uh, I think you mentioned, is it Picardin? Mm -hmm. The other one. How effective is that, I guess, compared to permethrin? Are they pretty similar? Or? Yeah, all of the ones that I mentioned um, are are quite useful. 
they're, they're the ones that are EPA registered for tick uh, repellency and killing ticks. And so they're all quite um, good at repelling and killing ticks. Okay. And I'm going to jump back here because there's one thing I meant to ask you earlier um, as far as the, the different um, diseases trans, transmitted by ticks. Can seed ticks or, or the larval stage of ticks, um, can they transmit these diseases just as well as the adult stages? There, there's a couple of pathogens that can be transmitted by larval stages, but most of the ones that we've talked about are not. So they hatch out of the eggs uninfected and they have to take that first blood meal off of an infected host before they pick up the pathogen. So the big ones that we think about, the Ehrlichias in the South and uh, Lyme disease, um, though, none of those are transmitted by larval ticks. So that's the good news because um, people really freak out when they get hundreds of thousands of those ticks on them. Yeah, yeah, I've been there and done that. And I, I think, I think a lot of people, um, I, I think there's a lot of cases where people thought they got into chiggers when they really got into seed ticks and just, you know, never even realized they had them until their legs are covered in, you know, little red bumps. And but, yeah, because yeah. the larvae are so small yeah. that unless you're actively looking um, and seeing them move around, they can be very difficult to see. And, and exactly the same with jiggers. Yeah. Well, let, let's say despite all the, the precautions, you know, you've, you found a, a tick lodged on your body. Um, what's the best way? to remove it and any steps beyond that you need to take to, to minimize risk of any kind of uh, disease transfer or pathogen transfer. Yeah. Um, the big thing is um, you don't want to squeeze the tick. So once you've got a tick attached to you, like I said, it takes a, a good uh, amount of time for them to feed before they're actively transmitting most of these pathogens. So the last thing you want to do is squeeze the tick and turn it into a syringe essentially. <sighs> yeah. As it's, you know, feeding, it's got these pathogens that are trying to get activated into the salivary glands. But if you squeeze it, then you mechanically um, inject yourself. So you don't want to do that. Um, the, the good news is that there are a number of different products on the market for those people that are really squeamish about ticks that can help, you know, remove those ticks. There are all these different um, apparatuses with little slits that you can slide under the tick and pull it off the skin. But, you know, if you've got a pair of fine tip um, uh, forceps. Um, you can just you know grab the tick down right at the skin level and pull it straight out. Um, what, what you hope to do is grab it right at its head where it's attached and pull that out so that all the mouth parts and everything come out. Uh, sometimes it'll break off and leave the mouth parts in your skin. Uh, in terms of pathogens, that's not a concern. Um, all the pathogens are in the bit that you did get off. Your skin may react to all of that material that was left because it's a foreign body in your skin. But, um, you know, there's there's no concern that there's any pathogens associated with those uh, mouth parts that were left. They they sometimes can be difficult to get out for certain individual ticks. Um, but, you know, you don't want to irritate the tick. You know, if you look online, you can find all sorts of crazy things like putting petroleum jelly on them or alcohol. Burning the ticks off is fun to watch videos Uh, of people catching their hair on fire. You know, 
you don't want to do any of that. You don't want to irritate the tick because that also would potentially stimulate it to inject some of those pathogens into you, but also they're not really effective. You know, just get in there with a, a good pair of tweezers that are fine tipped and pull the tick off or use one of the products that sort of slide onto it and pull it out. Okay. Gotcha. Well, anything else we'll, as we kind of wrap things up here, I guess anything else tick related that we haven't covered that, that, uh, you know, listeners might need to know or be interested in? No, I think the big thing is that there are, you know, good products out there to help avoid ticks getting on your body and just to make sure you take appropriate precautions and, um, look for ticks when you come in, protect your pets and, you know, Mark down if you've got known exposure to ticks in case you get sick seven to 10 days later. Um, make sure you mention that to your doctor. But enjoy the outside. You know, ticks are sadly not going to go anywhere. So we just <laughs> have to learn to do these precautions and, uh, and figure out better ways of avoiding mosquitoes and no CMs. Yeah. 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 Good, good luck with that here in the South. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I love going to the coast. Um, but boy, the helicoides are bad down there this time of year. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Michael, I appreciate you. You're you taking time out today to come on here and, and talk about ticks and tick-borne diseases. Uh, I think it's it's an important topic. Well, for for anybody that spends time outdoors, but but specifically for, you know, deer hunters that that listen to this podcast. Um, it's just uh yeah, it's just it's not something to play around with. So as as you mentioned there. We just need to take the the necessary steps to to protect ourselves from exposure as much as possible, and uh, you know, check ourselves and and just make sure that we're uh, you know being being as safe as possible while we're out there. We th- we we have a tendency to you know we think about the big things now, you know, tree stand safety and gun safety and that kind of stuff, but uh, you know you got to be safe when it comes to to ticks and and these other um, blood sucking insects as well. So. Yeah, and I would um, I would like to say a quick thanks to all the hunters that actually participate in surveillance efforts. And so there are a number of different groups, um, in, including ours, that reach out to hunters to um, have ticks submitted for surveillance purposes. Um, a huge part of our um, surveillance efforts for the Asian longhorn tick have been wildlife focused, and so it's it's awesome to have a community of folks who. Um, care enough to take the time to collect ticks and submit ticks to researchers and um, folks that are doing surveillance for those ticks um, because, you know, that sort of data helps us understand the risk for people um, and our pets. And so it's greatly appreciated. Okay. Now, is there a place online where they can learn more about that or, or get involved and help you guys out with that? So it depends on the state. So each state does have opportunities for that. In particular, um, my group here at the University of Georgia, it does regional surveillance for ticks. Um, We don't have a a website set up actively right now, but we do have plans to push out some media releases soon from different organizations that are going to request folks collect and submit ticks. Um, Primarily focused on the Asian longhorn tick, but also uh, we look at all the different ticks that are submitted uh, and, um, look at for different pathogens in those ticks and whatnot. So, um, you know, just keep a, keep a watch out. We'll be sending out some of those requests soon. All right. Well, good deal, Michael. Again, I appreciate your time and, uh, enjoy talking to you. Yep. You too. Thank you. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Michael Yabsley. 
Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.